Matthew chapter 11, we are teaching through Matthew's biography of Jesus of Nazareth. We left off last week in chapter 10 at the end of it. So we pick it up, chapter 11, verse one. Let's read. After Jesus had finished instructing his 12 disciples, he went on from there to teach and preach in the towns of Galilee. When John, who was in prison, heard about the deeds of the Messiah, he sent his disciples to ask him, wait, are you the one who is to come, or should we expect someone else? Jesus replied, go back, report to John what you hear and see. The blind receive sight, the lame walk, those who have leprosy are cleansed, the deaf hear, the dead are raised, and good news is proclaimed to the poor. Blessed is anyone who does not stumble on account of me. As John's disciples were leaving, Jesus began to speak to the crowd, but about John. What did you go out into the wilderness to see? A reed swayed by the wind? If not, what did you go out to see? A man dressed in fine clothes? No, those who wear fine clothes are on Instagram. Then what did you go out to see in king's palaces? What did you go out to see? A prophet. Yes, I tell you, and more than a prophet, this is the one about whom it is written, quote, I will send my messenger ahead of you who will prepare your way before you, end quote. Truly I tell you, among those born of women, there has not risen anyone greater than John the Baptist. Yet, whoever is least in the kingdom of heaven is greater than he. From the days of John the Baptist until now, the kingdom of heaven has been subjected to violence, and violent people have been raiding it. For all the prophets and the law prophesied until John, and if you're willing to accept it, he is the Elijah who was to come. Whoever has ears, let them hear. Do not equate a secular society to a society of unbelief. Instead, a secular society is one in which we all experience the contestability of our belief. What that feels like is to inhabit a society in which on your street you know there are people who don't believe what you believe, and they're good people, and they're smart people, and you all realize that what you believe can't be taken to be axiomatic and the default of our society anymore. Everybody in the secular age is going to experience what Charles Taylor calls cross pressure. We're going to feel tugged and pulled and pressured by alternative rival stories of who we are and what we're here for. We're all Thomas now. Good evening, welcome to Bridgetown Church. That is from the philosopher Jamie K. Smith, who is a friend of ours, he's been here before, and Smith is himself riffing on the earlier work of another philosopher, Charles Taylor from McGill University, whose thousand-page tome, A Secular Age, at least in academia, is the seminal work on secularism. Essentially, it's about how we moved in the West from society where, let's say in 1500 AD, faith was the default setting, to now where we're all racked by doubt, right? Not just the follower of Jesus, but everybody, the skeptic, the atheist, the Buddhist, the Muslim, the Christian, all of us are in this together, whether you're a victim of church gone bad or not. It's the air we breathe. How many of you have ever had a moment when the thought came into your mind, am I crazy? Is, okay, I'm not alone. Is any of this real? God, Jesus, the scriptures, like am, am I just making this up in my head? Is this mass delusion or something? In spite of all that God has done in your life, 
in spite of story after story of answered prayer and a coincidence for which there is no other even rational explanation other than God or a prophetic word or a sense of God's spirit with you in your mind and your body, not to mention the billions of other followers of Jesus all around the world and down through human history who attest to the same phenomenon still. Have you ever had that thought, just that moment when you doubted? And has that moment ever turned into a day? And has that day ever turned into a week? And has that week ever turned into a month, into a season of your life? When your faith, the calm, settled assurance of reality is called into question. If so, you are not alone. You are shoulder to shoulder with all sorts of people, more than you think, to your right, to your left, with myself up here on stage, and more importantly, with John the Baptizer, whom Jesus called the greatest man to ever live. Unfortunately, solidarity is not quite enough. We need a little bit more than that, at least in Portland in 2018. So let's work through the text line by line and then circle back to the subject of doubt and ask the question, okay, how do we cultivate faith in the quasi-corrosive soil of a city like Portland in a secular age? Again, chapter 11, verse one. Does that sound like a plan? Are you okay with that? Or you're just here and hot, all right? If your house is anything like mine, it's even worse, okay? So here you are. Chapter 11, verse one. After Jesus had finished instructing his 12 disciples, remember we just finished a long in-depth teaching of Jesus, he went on from there to teach and preach in the towns of Galilee, all up in the north. When John, that is John the baptizer, who we read about in chapter three, who was in prison. Now you have to keep reading to chapter 14 to figure out why. Short version, he was arrested by Herod, who was the king of the Jews. Israel's under Roman occupation, but Rome would normally set up a puppet king or a puppet governor. Herod was that king. And John made an enemy of Herod when he called him out on an affair that Herod had with his sister-in-law. Yes, that's a little kinky. Followed by a divorce to his wife and he then uh, ended up hitched to his former sister-in-law, which then caused uh, a minor war because her dad was the king of Nabataea, just not a good plan overall. On top of that, John's life message, go back and read chapter three, was that the king and the kingdom are right around the corner. Now, Herod already was, the, Israel already had a king, his name was Herod, so you do the map on that one. John was arrested as a threat to the status quo and put in a dungeon in the bottom of the palace. Now, when John, who was in prison, heard about the deeds of the Messiah, all the stories that we just read, the last few chapters, he sent his disciples, he had disciples as well, to ask Jesus, are you the one who is to come or should we expect someone else? The one who is to come was a figure of speech in the first century for the Messiah, right? So notice the question. When he heard about the deeds of the Messiah, he sent his disciples to ask Jesus, wait, are you the Messiah? Or should we expect somebody else? Notice that irony. John is having doubts. John, who leapt in his mother Elizabeth's womb when Mary walked in the door pregnant with Jesus. John, who was there in the Jordan River, heaven rent open, Jesus in the water, audible voice of God from the sky, this is my beloved son, that was again a figure of speech for the Messiah who was called the Son of God at that time, this is my beloved son on whom I'm well pleased, John, who said, behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world, John, who when some of his apprentices left apprentice under Jesus said, he must increase, I must decrease, that same John is having 
doubts. Wow, okay, why, what changed? Well, Matthew does not tell us, we don't know. It's implicit in the story that Jesus just does not line up to John's expectations. Can anybody relate to that in Jesus? And we don't know exactly what. It could be that Jesus was just eating and drinking with all the wrong people. It could be that John was expecting Jesus to like rally an army and fight off Rome and topple Herod from the throne and break him out of prison and set him up as you know vice president or whatever from Jerusalem over Israel. But instead, Jesus is just out healing poor people and teaching like a rabbi and doing a miracle and then saying, don't tell anybody about it. Jesus just does not line up to John's expectations. For whatever reason, and we're left to speculate, all we know is that John is having doubts. Now, four, Jesus replied, go back, report to John what you see, hear, and see. The blind receive sight, the lame walk, those who have leprosy are cleansed. Okay, we just read all those stories, last few chapters. The deaf hear, the dead are raised, and good news is proclaimed to the poor. Now, here's the problem. John already knows that. Right, we just read that line, when he heard about the deeds of the Messiah. That's not news. In fact, that is what prompted John's crisis of faith. Right, that's not there to assuage John's crisis of faith. If anything there, it's to amplify his doubt. The problem is, Jesus, you're out doing all this miraculous stuff and I'm stuck rotting away in prison. Have you ever felt that way? Have you ever been in that moment when we stand somebody up on stage who has been dealing with infertility for a decade or more, and we tell a story, we prayed over this person, and she got pregnant, and we clap, and we make noise, and we hoot, and we holler as we should. But what if you're in the back, and you've been dealing with infertility for just as long, and you've prayed and prayed and prayed and prayed and nothing? How does that feel? Or have you ever been in that moment where somebody comes forward for prayer um, over cancer or an illness or whatever and we pray and there's a full on healing in that moment and we applaud and we celebrate, yes, and then you're left there with a chronic illness and you've come for prayer not once, not twice, but 397 times and nothing. Or you've been waiting on a promise from God about a dream, about a relationship, about a marriage, about a career, about a kingdom thing, and you're just stuck, and somebody else has a word from God, and three days later on Thursday afternoon, it all comes true. Thinking that is not fair. How do you feel in that moment? Part of you is happy for that person. The other part of you just is, God, where are you? Did you forget about me? Did you forget about that word? Was I crazy? Is any of this real? Am I out of my mind? All of that goes through your mind. John is right in that spot. So he already knows all of that. What is Jesus saying here? Well, Jesus was a rabbi and John was a prophet. Both of them would have had the entire Bible, or what we call the Old Testament, put to memory. That is hard to fathom in a society where Google is a verb, right? but it was standard practice at that time. And verse five, the blind receive sight, the lame walk, those who have leprosy are cleansed, depending on which scholar you read, is either a quote or an allusion or at least would have brought to mind a number of prophecies from Isaiah, which was a well-known prophet at the time, in particular this one from Isaiah 61. The spirit of the sovereign Lord is on me because the Lord has anointed me. The word Messiah in Hebrew literally means anointed one. This is a prophecy 
from the seventh century BC about the coming Messiah in the future to usher in the kingdom of God. He has anointed me to, notice the language, proclaim good news to the poor. Full on steal from Jesus there or Jesus is you know, riffing on Isaiah. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim, notice, freedom for the captives and release from darkness for who? I know you're tired and hot, but for who? For the prisoners. Who's in prison in the story? John. So notice that Jesus does not quote from the last part about freedom for the captives and release from darkness for the prisoners. Jesus is saying, and this would have gone straight to John the Baptist's heart, John, I am the Messiah from Isaiah that you have been waiting for. Blind, look around you. Blind people see, lame people walk, deaf people hear, but John, I'm not coming for you. There's no assault on the palace in the works. There's no army hiding in the Galilean hill. In fact, I actually teach nonviolence and enemy love. That's just not, I'm not coming to break you out of jail, behead Herod, and set you up, rich and famous. That's not my way, that's not how my kingdom will come to bear in the world. Violence is not the solution to the problem of violence. It just begets more. I'm here to break the chain of violence, to stop it dead in its tracks through self-sacrifice, not through war. John, I'm not coming for you. Just feel the weight of that on your soul. Then Jesus says, verse six, blessed is anyone who does not stumble on account of me. Blessed, it's makarios is the word in Greek. It can be translated fortunate or happy or well off or at peace. Is anyone who does not stumble, the word there in Greek is skandalistathe, which is where we get the word scandalized in English. One lexicon defined it as, quote, to cause someone to experience anger and or shock because of what has been said or done, to cause one to be offended or to offend. In fact, the line can be translated, blessed is anyone who is not offended if you have the ESV. Or Wright has, God bless you if you're not upset by what I'm doing. Or another scholar, Bruner, has, God bless you, John, if you do not throw the whole thing over because I'm a different kind of Messiah than you were expecting. But it's translated by the NIV as stumble because it's actually, that is the right translation, it's actually a word picture that is used all through the Old and the New Testaments to stumble, to fall, to trip up. It means to fall into sin and or away from God. So Jesus is saying, listen, blessed, fortunate, well-off is anybody who doesn't get angry or take umbrage or fall away or trip up or get all messed up and walk away because I don't match so-and-so's expectations and your life in my kingdom does not match your expectations. Now, that, verse six, is the end of the story for John, right? Verse seven, as John's disciples were leaving, Jesus began to speak to the crowd about John. Make sure you get that. That's all, that's the memo for John. Go back, tell John what you see, what you hear, blind, see, blah, 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 Isaiah 61 kind of thing. Blessed are those who do not stumble on account of me. The rest is just for you and me, the reader, and for the crowd that was there. What did you go out into the wilderness to see? John was out in the wilderness by the Jordan River. A reed swayed by the wind. There was, that was, you know, there were reeds, 15 foot tall reeds out in the wind by the Jordan. If not, what did you go out to see? A man dressed in fine clothes? No, those who wear fine clothes are in king's palaces. 
Then what did you go out to see? A prophet, yes, I tell you, and more. So this whole thing is a compare and contrast between John the baptizer and King Herod. There's a lot here. Basically, reeds swayed by the wind is double entendre. Herod had coins minted with his face on one side and a reed in the wind on the other. Reed swayed by the wind was also a figure of speech for a politician or a scam artist or somebody who changed his or her opinion with the kind of winds of popular opinion. We even still kind of have that language a bit. And obviously, fine clothing, this is long before globalization, right, was for the aristocrat in the palace, not John at all. He's saying, listen, you, you don't go out, John's not, like you don't follow him on Instagram for the latest in men's fashion or whatever. He's not rich, he's not a motivational speaker, he's not a politician, he's nothing like Herod at all. Instead, he's a prophet. Somebody with his ear to God and his mouth to the people of God. And even more than a prophet, 10, this is the one about whom it is written. And next is a quote from the prophet Malachi from about the third or fourth century BC. I will send my messenger, that can be translated emissary, ahead of you who will prepare your way before you. So in the ancient world, long before electronic communication, before a king would visit a city or a nation, he would send an emissary ahead to get the city or to get the nation ready for his arrival, right? So there's a prophecy in Malachi about a figure who was an emissary, who would come before the Messiah to get Israel and all of the world ready for the Messiah. Later in that same prophecy, the figure is identified as Malachi. There's a whole bunch of Bible nerd stuff I don't have time for. I'm sorry, as Elijah. Bible nerd stuff I don't have time for. If you know the story of Elijah, he never died. It's this kind of weird, obscure story in Kings. And so most Jews thought, in fact, Orthodox Jews to this day still set an empty place at the table at Passover for Elijah in case, because they were and many still are waiting for Elijah to come back and usher in the Messiah and the kingdom of God. Jesus is saying, it's John. Truly, verse 11, I tell you, among those born of women, just a figure of speech, there's not risen anyone greater than John the Baptist. Put another way, he's the greatest man to ever live, yet whoever is least in the kingdom of heaven is greater than he. Now that sounds a little bit like a complicit at first. It's not, keep reading. 12, from the days of John the Baptist until now, the kingdom of heaven has been subjected to violence. Violent people have been raiding it. More on that in a bit. For all the prophets and the law prophesied until John, and if you're willing to accept it, he is the Elijah who was to come. Now, basically, long story short, what Jesus is saying is that John is the end of one era and Jesus is the beginning of a new one. Therefore, stay with me. It's better to be a nobody in the new era than to be the greatest man to ever live in the old. The New Testament scholar N.T. Wright has this a little cheesy but great metaphor of, say, turn of the last century, the advent of the automobile, which radically changed life in the world for better and for worse. Imagine if prior to that advent, you ran the most successful you know, horse-drawn carriage business in the country, right? Obviously, that's a great thing, but the advent of the automobile, you're now out of business. And it would be better to be a line mechanic for Henry Ford than to be the owner and operator of Miller and Sons horse-drawn carriage, right? Not because your work is bad, but because it is now obsolete. He writes this, the whole sweep and swath of history that led up to John and his work was now being wound up, not because it was a failure, but because it was a 
success. If the law and the prophets were looking forward to something that was yet to come, they are set aside when the new thing arrives, not because they haven't told the truth, but because they have. Israel's long history from Abraham and Moses through the prophets to the present moment was one long preparation, one long getting ready time. Now the preparation was over and the reality had dawned. Hence Jesus' line, he is Elijah, we're here right on the cusp of a whole new era of human history. And then Jesus' closing line, whoever has ears, let them hear. How good is that? Come on, that is brilliant teaching right there. Jesus is saying, listen, pay attention. It's more forceful in the Greek. Not just, hey, let them hear. It means listen carefully, pay attention, right? Jesus is a little bit cryptic here, but what he's saying is, listen, if John is Elijah, then who does that make Jesus? The Messiah, right? But Jesus just can't stand up in public and say, hey everybody, I'm the Messiah. John got arrested and put in jail just for saying the Messiah is coming. Can you imagine what they would do to somebody who actually said, I am the Messiah? Well, you can't imagine. They would immediately arrest him and then 24 hours later put him to death on a Roman cross. That's exactly what would later happen. And Jesus is up for that, but it's not time yet. He still has more work to do. That's why he does all sorts of Messiah stuff, healing the sick, casting out a demon, and then he says, shh, don't tell anybody about it yet. It's not because Jesus is bashful or like it's bad to tell somebody when you raise them from the dead. Whenever I raise somebody from the dead, I post it on Instagram every time, all right? It's just that it was not yet time. So rather than stand up and say, I'm the Messiah, Jesus would just do all sorts of Messiah-y stuff and then say, if you have ears, if you're smart, if you're observant, if you pay attention, you know exactly who I am and exactly what I'm saying and hear. Reorder and rearrange your life to match up to the new reality and the new era that we are about to step into. Now, deep breath. You still alive, awake? It's even hotter than it was 10 minutes ago. How does that feel? It's just lousy, right? Now let's transpose and translate all of this from the first century to the 21st, from John the baptizer to you and to me. In the story that we just read, the key line is verse six. Blessed is anyone who does not stumble on account of me. Now before we zero in on that line, and we'll kind of end there, first we need to talk about the doubt that gave occasion for it. So if just a few thoughts on doubt, and you all know this, but one, doubt is the air we breathe in a secular society. Per that quote from Jamie earlier, it is just the new normal for the Western world. In Jesus' language, quote, the kingdom of God has been subject to violence and violent people have been raiding it, meaning the kingdom from ancient Israel up until now has always been under attack. There has always been opposition and even violent opposition to the rule and the reign of God in the world. And violent people, evil, malevolent people have always been raiding the kingdom in an attempt to kill off its leaders and stop the kingdom movement dead in its tracks. 
John was arrested and then later beheaded. Jesus himself was crucified. All of Jesus' disciples were put to death by the empire. Millions in the early church up into Constantine for the first four centuries were put to death. To this day, we think of that as a thing in the past, untrue. Violence against followers of Jesus is at an all-time high. Some estipends, depending on who you read, it's hard to measure, but put the number at over 100,000 a year who are killed for the most part throughout Southeast Asia and the Middle East. Here in the West, our bodies are not under threat, thank God, for our faith in Jesus, but our souls still are. There's still a war, there's just not an AK-47, there's an op-ed instead. The air we breathe in a secular, progressive, urban, busy, noisy city is a kind of assault on our faith. There's something about the city, you all know it, that just eats away at faith. I was chatting with somebody after church last Sunday morning, this guy Todd, who came to the church years and years ago, and I remember we sat at the basics class. You know that awkward moment where you're at a table with strangers and you all moved here from like Minnesota and Riverside, and you're like, who are you, right? And you're here and you don't know anybody, and we sat at this table, and he was on my left, and this other guy was on my right. That sounded a little Jesus-y, sorry. and, uh, and Todd asked, hey, how is that other guy? How's he doing? And I said, you know, it's kind of a bummer. They worked together at the time. I said, you know, he was in and out of church for years, and he finally got a new Bridgetown community. It was the closest he ever came to apprenticeship to Jesus, and he made it, I don't know, six months. And then he stopped coming to church, and then stopped coming to his community, and then just kind of stopped his faith. Last I heard, he was just kind of in the agnostic space. And Todd said, you know, man, I've lost so many friends to this city. As somebody who's been here for about a decade now, I've lost so many friends to the city. How many of you can say that? I've lost so many friends to the city, either through a crisis of faith or just through brunch, which is even more effective a lot of the time. Or just through, most of the time, it's through one small little compromise at a time. Right, your passion for the things of God just starts to dim, and your passion for all sorts of other things. As Jesus said, the cares of this world, the desire for other things, and the deceitfulness of wealth choke the word and it becomes unfruitful. End quote of Jesus. Agrarian metaphor, but I think we all get it even in the city. So in this city, it's like a war of attrition, right? Faith v. doubt, we just get what it is like to live with doubt. Secondly, make sure that you get that doubt is not the same thing as unbelief. So just think about that for a moment. Doubt is the struggle to believe. It is the search for truth. You can't make yourself believe something. That's called stupidity or wishful thinking or whatever. Unbelief is the stubborn refusal to believe. It's the denial of truth. So doubt is, and I want to believe, but I'm just not sure, and I read this thing, and what about evolution and Genesis, and what about this wacky thing from the church? I don't get it, and I, I want to believe, but I just don't know. Unbelief is, it's like the little kid, na 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 I can't hear you, right? Like a few nights ago at dinner, I just read this book about how sugar is basically the devil, you know? and all of this effect on the biochemistry in particular of children, and I started to talk about it, and Jude, my 12-year-old, who is a sugar addict, literally said, Dad, stop it! da 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 and literally started doing that. He did not want to know about sugar and its effect on the mind or the body. That's unbelief, right? That's not only do I not believe, I don't want to believe. I don't even want to hear it because I have my own thing. I have my addiction to sugar, and I'm fine with it. Thank you very much. 
or whatever it is. We all know that, I mean, the myth of secularism that has been thoroughly debunked by the last four decades of philosophy at an academic level is that there is this rational, capital R, objective, unbiased, fly-on-the-wall objectivity, right, in journalism, in science, in religion, and whatever, and we I mean, you don't need a PhD to figure out that's a myth. It's just not true at an academic level and at common sense. Nobody's unbiased. That does not mean that there is no such thing as truth. It just means that this secular myth of, well, you know, the cold, hard truth, it's just a myth. We believe certain things and we want to believe certain things and we don't want to believe other things. You have to wrestle with this with God. Do I want, if there is a God, do I want there to be a God or do I not? And my point is, doubt and unbelief are not in the same category, and Jesus treats them very differently. Notice that Jesus does not rebuke John for his doubt. How dare you? Do you not remember? I was there in the Jordan River. Did you miss the dove from heaven? Like, there's none of that. His language is gracious, and notice he doesn't even say, blessed are those who never doubt. Maybe that's not even a possibility. He just says, blessed are those who, when they doubt, don't stumble, don't trip up, don't fall away, don't give in the towel and order birmosa and call it good. Because remember, the opposite of faith isn't doubt, it's certainty and control. Think of faith and doubt as companions on the journey, each an aid to the other in the pursuit of truth. And I don't mean that to, you know, highlight doubt as a good thing. No, it is a problem to be solved but there's good in it to press you and move you into the hunt for truth. I think that's why Jesus just isn't afraid of doubt. He just doesn't sound all stressed out when people like doubt whether or not he's the Messiah. He just doesn't seem all, how could you doubt? What is, he just doesn't, he's really relaxed about it. I think that Jesus would be the first person to tell you, you must follow the truth wherever it leads. He also said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. And I, for one, believe that if you follow the truth wherever it leads, it will eventually lead you to the door of Jesus. Now, I wish that I could stand up here before you tonight and just say, this is a little teaching for all of you that struggle with doubt. I have no idea what that's like. I used to struggle with that, like back in the day, and now, like when I struggle with Diet Coke. And I'm past that now. I've moved on. It's a thing in my past. Um, But that's just not my story. My personality test on Myers-Briggs, I read a while back, is, quote, most likely to be an atheist. Okay, not all that helpful. Google famous INTJs, and immediately the very top of the list is a bunch of horrible people. It's like Nietzsche and Lenin, not the singer, the other one who killed millions of people, Charles Darwin, Stephen Hawking, it's like Ayn Rand, it's a bunch of really mean, smart atheists for the most part, right? So I feel this in my bones, especially in a city like Portland. You may or may not, based on your personality and your life experience and your church background, all of that. But all of us to some degree feel this because it's the air we breathe. A while back I was debriefing a dark night of the, of the soul with my spiritual director. I'm not ready to talk about that, hopefully next year. But um, we were just in a conversation around doubt. And he said, you know, until you have been down the road of doubt and back, you have nothing to say to this city. Because everybody, follower of Jesus or not, is there, it's the air we breathe. And in my experience, all of my trips down the rabbit hole of doubt have been hellish at times, 
But from each one, I've come out the other side with a faith that is not just back to normal, but is far more robust, grounded, thoughtful, at peace, and stable than it was beforehand. So to end, let's just shift gears to the how. How how do we cultivate faith in the corrosive soil of a secular city? Just a few thoughts from my own life and church tradition. One is this, and I know it's a bit cliche, but doubt your doubts. Our culture tells us the message that we hear on a pretty much daily basis is to doubt our beliefs and to believe our doubts. And there is a time and a place to do that where that's healthy, that's mature, that's intelligent. But we also need to doubt our doubts and believe our beliefs, am I right? There's a time and a place for that as well. If if you're in a situation, part of you says, I don't know if I believe in this. And the other part of you says, I know that I believe in this. Why should you go with the former rather than the latter? Again, the cultural messaging is doubt is sophisticated. Skepticism is for the educated and the open-minded and the tolerant and the cultured. Faith is for the simpleton, the uneducated, you know, people from, you know, some heathen place like Alabama or something. That's not an offense to you, Alabama. I'm just naming the bigotry of our city. I do not participate in that at all, okay? Um, I'm just saying, you know it's true, right? That is the cultural message, right? If you're smart, you're a doubting skeptic. If you are simple and foolish and uneducated, you are a person of faith. Where does that message come from? Again, that is not like some scientific, unbiased, objective truth. That is a cultural bias against faith that is deep in the psyche of the Western world. If you follow, and it's just not true, and if you follow secularism to its logical conclusion, the end of that road is death, literally. I mean, you are an accident, a glorious accident, if you're lucky enough to be born in the right time, the right place, you know, the right family, the right ethnicity, the right privilege status, whatever, to enjoy the world the way that you want to by our cultural definition of success. And even then, you have no meaning, no purpose, life is what you make of it, morality, spirituality is all just socially conditioned, and so you just get what you can and then you die. Like, that is not the path to life. That is the path to death. At some point, I don't know if I should say this, but I would rather be wrong and live the way of Jesus, which I think is the best way to live and be human, than be right and live the way of our city. Therein lies despair. Secondly, so first, just doubt your doubts, right? There is a time and a place to doubt your doubts and believe your beliefs. Secondly, grow your faith. When John doubted, Jesus said, go tell John what you see and hear. See and hear, that is still the best way to grow your faith, to see the works of Jesus and hear the words of Jesus. Um, There are all sorts of ways to do this. Practices like, for me, reading the scriptures in the morning, where I hear the words of Jesus and sometimes I'm like, I don't even know what he's saying. And the other times, you ever feel like that? And then other times there is a deep resonance in my soul where like, you know truth when you hear truth, am I right? There's a part of you that just says, yeah, that is right, that is how life actually works. So reading the scriptures, coming to church on Sunday or even just to uh, a meal with your community on a Tuesday night or whatever is a huge aid to faith. I mean, is it just me? Are there ever times when you walk in after a hard week, maybe in a season of doubt, and you start to sing, and I don't know, halfway through the first song or second or third, you just start to think, oh, I'm not crazy. Or if I am, there's lots of other crazy people here too, right? Oh this, oh, this is real, this is true. Oh yeah, oh, I forgot about that. Oh yeah, that, oh yeah, life isn't about that. Life is, 
about that, oh yes, and like we come back to true north. That's why we're here week after week after week. It's why we take time to open the scriptures and let me talk at you or whoever, just to reorient to truth and reality. Another practice for me is just reading, in particular really smart people that believe in Jesus or at least are theistic. Some of my favorites for those of you who are readers in the room, the Allure of Gentleness by Dallas Willard. Unapologetic, subtitle is Why Despite Everything Christianity Can Still Make Surprising Emotional Sense by Francis Spufford, one of my favorites of the last few years. Mere Christianity is still a classic by C.S. Lewis. Simply Christian, which is basically that, but updated by N.T. Wright. How Not to Be Secular is a great expose by Jamie Smith. Disappearing Church is a good read by our friend Mark Sayers. I read these books and then I reread these books in seasons of out and I feel my faith grow. But even if you're not a reader or a podcaster or that's not how you're wired, just hearing stories of God at work is fuel on the fire for a life of faith. Am I right? Just every time you hear a story, it doesn't even have to be a, a major one, even minor. Just a few days ago, my wife had a dream at night that this friend of ours um, was pregnant with um, a girl and, and she woke up that morning and hadn't seen this person in weeks and they went out for coffee and they sat in the car and her friend said, guess what, I have something to tell you. And Tammy said, you're pregnant with a girl. And she said, yes, just like these little stories. Like, what is that? Just God's sense of humor or something. Or I was reading this book a week or two ago and it was not a Christian book. It was this academic psychology book and um, there was a reference to an academic study done on 250 people with near-death experiences where they were either unconscious for a time or the heart stopped or whatever, but then survived. And it was just this academic survey of what that experience was like. And basically, they all said a very similar story. They had an out-of-body experience where they felt they were, they looked down on their body and on the operating room or on the side of the road or whatever. Then they saw a light and they felt love and joy coming toward them and a being that they perceived as God or usually as Jesus inviting them forward. That was like, it's not like a Christian little bestseller like at the airport to get you to waste $7 of your money, right? It's like an academic thing. I'm like, where is that in the New York Times? Like just these little things or, or the major things. Stories of healing. I think about my own mother who was diagnosed with adult onset type 1 diabetes, not type 2. It's unhealable. There is no cure. Doctor, all of that, on medication. We had this moment a few years ago, prayed for her, elder staff. We had this, like 30 or 40 people all prayed for her, literally gone, healed. It's unhealable, and she's healed. What do they call it? Spontaneous remission. That's, you know, medicine for Jesus, right? or whatever. So whether it's, or how many of you could tell stories about generosity, I gave this amount of money and then out of the blue I got a check, it's just rent, like so many stories where at some point like the universe has my back is really not very helpful. Like really, that's you're giving credit to the tree rather than God. Like seriously, so many stories for which there is no good explanation other than Jesus is exactly who he said he was and he's not dead. He is alive from the dead and at work in the world. If nothing else, just go read old journal entries and in seasons of doubt, trust what you felt God said to you in seasons of faith. And if you can't even do that, then just hang out with other people who have faith. If you don't have faith, let somebody else's faith carry you. Let somebody else pray for you. Let somebody else drive you to church. Let somebody else read the scriptures next to you. Let somebody else carry you in faith. That's what family is all about. Third, just moving on, um, stay emotionally healthy. 
Not much to say here other than you are a whole person and I need to hear that a thousand times a day. Doubt is as much emotional as it is intellectual. It is not a coincidence that John doubted when he was tired and hungry and in prison. D.A. Carson, a well-known scholar, has a book on doubt, and it has a list of, I think there's 10 or so reasons for doubt. You know what number seven is? Sleep deprivation. True story, he writes this. Doubt may be fostered by sleep deprivation. If you keep burning the candle at both ends sooner or later, this is really good, you will indulge in more and more mean cynicism. And the line between cynicism and doubt is a very thin one. If you are among those who become nasty, cynical, or even full of doubt when you are missing your sleep, you are morally obligated to try to get the sleep you need. We are whole complicated beings. Our physical existence is tied to our spiritual well-being, to our mental outlook, to our relationships with others, including our relationship with God. Sometimes the godliest thing you can do in the universe is get a good night's sleep. I love it, you just have to take care of your whole person. I have a dear friend I've been in relationship with now for a decade who she has an on again, off again struggle with doubt and I've started to notice a pattern. There are seasons in her life when she just really has an issue with doubt. You know when they are? I can chart it, the first six months after each baby. Not making this up, you moms in the room. It's like when she's not sleeping and she's dead tired and life is good but really hard, that's when there's a struggle with doubt. That's not a coincidence, we're a whole person. Finally is this, and we'll end here. Define success as trust, not as certainty. And most definitely not as its twin control. Philosophers point out that knowledge of truth does not require certainty. I know that the earth is 93 million miles from the sun. Um, How do I know that? I've never been there. I don't have a laser pointer, right, that I, how do I know that? Well, I had a high school science teacher that I didn't really like, but he told me that, right? And I don't know that with certainty, but the odds are that I have knowledge of reality. We will never have certainty in the 100% scientific method, empirical, that sense, nor will, of God's existence, nor will the atheist of God's non-existence. In fact, at a philosophical level, and some of this is over my pay grade, but it's harder to prove the non-existence of something than it is to prove the existence of something. But that doesn't mean that we don't have knowledge of truth. The tricky thing about life in general, follower of Jesus or not, God or something else, is that we sometimes have to make a 100% commitment with less than 100% certainty. A great example is marriage. On your wedding day, you guys are just hit one year, right? Happy anniversary. Um, On your wedding day, you don't have 100% certainty that you're a good match and you're going to have a great life together. Still, you make a 100% commitment until death do us part, for richer, for poorer, in sickness and in health. Like, think about what you're saying. You make a 100% commitment if you're lucky and not naive, you have maybe 80% certainty. Right, you all think you have 100% certainty, you don't. That's just, you're really young or in love or something like that. But that doesn't mean that you're not right. It doesn't mean that you're not a good match. It doesn't mean that you don't have a great life ahead of you. The point is, at some point, you just have to make a commitment. The thing about faith, this, we have this stupid phrase, people of faith. What a ridiculous non sequitur. All people are people of faith. You have to have faith to live. 
Faith is just reliance on somebody or something else as reality to base your life around. You have to have faith just to make it through a day. I have faith that my bicycle that I locked up outside that I rode here in the sweltering heat is still there, that the tire's not flat, that nobody stole it, that I'm not gonna have a seizure on the way out tonight. That bike is my plan to get home. So I've based my whole night around this idea. I have faith in the reality that I have a bicycle, that it's still out there, the tires aren't flat, I'm still in semi-healthy condition, and I can ride my bike home. Hopefully it won't be as hot on the way home, right? I might be wrong, but I think I have, I don't know, 90% certainty or something like that. It is downtown Portland, maybe 85% certainty, (laughs) something like that. And so at some point, I just have to make a decision to trust in my bicycle to get me home. Does that make sense? My point is we all live by faith every hour of every day, atheist, Christian, Buddhist, every single person on the planet. That is how you live, it's by faith. Or really a better word, a number of scholars have made the point, and I agree 100%, that faith is just not a good translation. That word has such a checkered past. A better translation is trust. Faith or trust is to live in reliance on somebody or something else to chart a course through life. My point is that the end goal of our apprenticeship to Jesus, listen, isn't a life free of doubt, it is a life full of trust. Jesus does not call us to 100% certainty with no doubt. Honestly, I don't know if I'll ever get there. He calls us to trust him. Not even to trust our ideas about him, which may or may not be right and correspond to reality, but to trust him, the person. And our blessedness, or if you prefer happiness, or our sense of well-being will rise or fall proportionate to our level of trust in God. So we come to our line, blessed is anyone who does not stumble on account of me. This story, this line is an invitation from Jesus, not only to John, But to anyone, notice that language, anyone, to you and to me, it is an invitation to trust. When you are in your John kind of moment, when Jesus does not meet your expectations, when life does not meet your expectations, when things, the marriage, the job, the relationship, the church, the city, the scenario, the business venture does not work out, when you're confused, when you are still waiting, when you are stuck, when you live in the tension of unanswered questions, when your life is really hard and Jesus doesn't sweep in like one of the Avengers in the 11th hour just to rescue you in the nick of time, but instead sends a message, I love you but I'm not coming for you. Blessed, happy are you if you trust me. When that moment comes, and it will come for all of you, some of you are in that moment right now, The invitation is to trust. Sometimes there's a cross to bear. Sometimes it's just waiting another day, another week, another year, just waiting on God. Sometimes it's just my grace is sufficient. But the invitation to all of you is to trust. So to close, here is my wannabe Eugene Peterson translation of Jesus' line. Blessed, happy, fortunate, so well off and at peace are all those followers of Jesus who, even when life is hard, 
when the dream is crushed, when the diagnosis is lousy, when they have more questions than answers and live in the fog of confusion and can't chart a way out, even then they don't fall away into sin. They don't walk away from God. Instead, they trust. They sit and wait. Whatever comes, comes. They are okay, happy even, because the settled condition of their heart is to live in reliance on the goodness of God. Let anyone who has ears hear. Let's pray.